This is Reinvented. I'm Chris Bordoni, and this show is about the art and science of transformation. In season two of Reinvented, we're exploring ways to design a better life from your physical health to your mental well being and far, far beyond. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Marissa Franco. Dr. Franco is a psychologist and an expert in friendship. She's been on Good Morning America, written in a variety of outlets, and is currently writing a book called Platonic on how to make friends as an adult. I wanted to have Dr. Franco on the show to talk about friendship, a topic that is incredibly important. I can't wait to get started, so let's dive in. We all know that relationships matter. They're good for your health, they're good for your happiness, your resilience, so many different things. But at the same time, the average American hasn't made a new friend in something like five years. Um, A lot of us feel lonely, particularly coming out of the pandemic. And so there's clearly something that's going on here. And so I'm really excited to have you here and just to dive in and figure out, as we're all trying to live better lives, how does does friendship, how do relationships fit into that? And what can we do to, you know, try to have the, the relationships that we want, but maybe aren't necessarily coming to us today? So I guess just to start, um, let me ask you this. What does a healthy friendship actually look like? That is a great question. I think a healthy friendship looks like reciprocity, where both people are invested in the relationship. There is one one key aspect of healthy friendship is perspective taking, right? So when I ask you for something, I'm also considering your needs and what you have going on in your life and vice versa. Um, I think another one is we're rooting for each other's success. So when I have an accomplishment, you're excited for me, you're really happy for me versus you're trying to bring me down. And that's because I think what underpins a lot of these healthy behaviors is the idea that when we get close to someone, we begin to include them in our sense of ourselves. So Mm. if all goes as planned, when we get close to someone, when they succeed, it feels like us succeeding. And we basically have their best interests at heart because, you know, their accomplishments are our accomplishments, their joy is our joy. And so in that process, we are able to perspective take, consider their needs, want the best for them and engage in a really healthy friendship. That's so interesting. So, I mean, it makes total sense, but there's like, there's something shared, I think, in that definition, right? Like, I genuinely want you to be happy, to be healthy, to be doing well in life. Like, I genuinely want you to to celebrate your you know, I'm not competing with you, right? Like there's something about that that's much deeper than just like, we've shared a lot, we make each other laugh, we you know have fun together. It sounds like there's something more authentic that's underlying that type of relationship. Yeah, I mean, it fundamentally alters our sense of self, I think. I mean, I'm very interested in, in how our relationships affect our very identities and how we see ourselves. And there's a psychiatrist who argues that basically our personality is an accumulation of of basically like how we've experienced ourselves in our relationships with our closest others is how we come to find who we are as people. So I think it's really, really central. And I think, you know, that is fundamentally one of the, the most important arguments that I make for friendship, that if our relationships define who we are, if we're in this insular romantic relationship and we don't develop other friendships, we're only going to experience one side of ourselves. And so to experience Mm. the full richness, beauty, complexity of who we are, we need to be around multiple different types of people who bring out our different sides. So that's such an interesting idea. Can we go a little deeper on that, right? So I think what I'm hearing is for me to really know myself and to really blossom as a person, like 
I need friendships. I need relationships to enable me to do that. Why is that? What is it that I can't do or get on my own that I can get from, you know, a relationship with a a friend, a romantic partner, a family member, et cetera? Yeah. So just to kind of make this, put this in a practical example. So my romantic partner, he doesn't really know how to swim. I love swimming. (laughs) Um, We go to Mexico together. They have the cenotes there. They're like sinkholes. And he just doesn't want to go in. And I'm just like, I kind of want to go in, but now I'm swimming in the cenote and it's like less fun than I would have uh, because he's just sort of waiting on the side and I'm feeling bad that he's like, you know, not enjoying himself. And so over time, I think what begins to happen is we begin to experience the sides of ourselves that match our relationship partner. And then those other sides of ourselves, they kind of start to wither. And so, you know, if, if my partner doesn't like to swim, I can find a friend who likes to swim and that part of myself won't wither. If my partner doesn't like NASCAR and I love NASCAR, I can go to the NASCAR games with my friend. If my partner hates writing and I love to write, you know, I can start writing groups with my friends. And so there's this way that we don't, we're not forced to grieve parts of ourselves when we have an entire community and we have friendships that still allow us to experience the breadth of who we are. That's, that's so interesting, right? So I feel like I think about my relationships and like you could have a super healthy relationship overall. It's a great relationship, but part of it maybe being healthy is like, is that give and take that compromise that like respect that you were kind of talking about in the beginning. But one of the maybe unintended consequences, one of the downsides of that is is that you do compromise. So you're like, okay, like I won't make you go swimming in your example because you know, your partner can't swim. But then that that prevents some part of you that maybe is really important to you from being expressed over time. And so other relationships are a way to get at that. Is that kind of how you see it? Yeah, I really like the idea of like we use friendships so that ourself isn't compromised, really. <laughs> um, communities to to not have to compromise ourselves. Like I think compromise as a concept is very important. But in a larger way, we don't want to feel compromised as people. Um, But I think if we rely on one person for all of our needs, then I don't really see a way for us to not feel at least a little bit compromised, right? Because of that whole process that happens when our romantic partner has an interest that's different from our own. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's really, really, really fascinating. Uh, Now, I've, I've heard you talk in the past about loneliness um, and how there's three different types of loneliness. So there's like, there's the intimate type of loneliness, there's relational, and then there's community. And I feel like this is potentially related here because I think there, and I'm curious to get your perspective, but it feels like there's some pressure on certain parts of those, certainly during the pandemic, right? But then I think just generally with the society that we're building, right? There's some challenges around community. But I guess before we get into that, will you sort of step through what are these three different types of loneliness? What do they, what do they actually look like? Yeah. So basically these three types of loneliness kind of tell us that feeling lonely isn't just about not having companionship. It's actually about not having specific types of companionships as well. Um, So first you have the intimate loneliness, which is I'm lonely for those people that I feel really close to and really get me, my best friend, my romantic partner, maybe for some lucky people, their parents, their siblings. Um, And then you have your relational loneliness, which is your loneliness for basically friends, Um, people that maybe aren't your most intimate circle, but are the next kind of tier or a few tiers up from that. And so, um, you know, you haven't seen your your once in a a month 
lunch date friend in a while or your colleagues that you're really friendly with, you might start to experience that relational loneliness. Then the last one that I think I have quoted uh, as communal, but now I I checked myself in the research, was actually collectivistic loneliness, but it's the same definition, which is basically your desire for a larger community that's working towards a common goal. So that's like your bowling league, your church group, your writing Mm -hmm. group, um, maybe your political group, if that's something you're engaged in. It's um it's again I feel like when I when I think about the collectivistic loneliness there's that really strong identity piece that we feel like when we're feeling like we're working towards a common purpose with other people it makes us feel so fulfilled our identities it makes us feel full of purpose um yeah. and so what the research basically shows is that if any of these tears are missing from your life you can feel lonely You can be around your very best friend all the time, your romantic partner all the time, but you can still feel lonely because of the variety of ways that our needs for social connection manifest. I think that's really helpful because sometimes you look at like your own life or someone else's life and you think like, how could I be lonely? How could this person be lonely? But it suggests that you need, you need to check all three of those boxes. And it's obviously more than checking boxes, but you need to be satisfied in all three of those dimensions, which I think kind of brings me to where it feels like we are today as a country and maybe in the world where there's some pressure, right? So like on the communal piece of this, it's easier in some ways to find your community because you can go on Facebook and only get served like stories that have to do exactly what you already believe. And you can use technology to connect with people in certain groups, et cetera. But on the other hand, people are super isolated. There's a lot more animosity and it feels like it's uh, it's harder to point to the institutions, perhaps like the bowling leagues of the past, where people were like, they had that group, they had that thing that they were working toward. It seems like people are kind of untethered from those types of activities, like the bowling alone phenomenon. What's what's your perspective on that? Do you feel like there are some societal changes that make it are making it harder to be fulfilled on all three of those dimensions? Or is that just kind of like an easy escape? I do think so. Um, Bowling Alone, great book. And he kind of argues, he looks at all of these different factors that have made us lonelier. Well, not lonelier, but just less civically involved over time. Why aren't we joining our bowling leagues? And he concludes, based off of all his really extensive research, that the strongest factor is the creation of the television for why we've Mm -hmm. started to hole up in our homes. All of a sudden, we have something better to do, right? If we were just sitting in our boredom, we'd be much more likely to knock on our neighbor's door and say, hey, how's it going? What are you up to? And, you know, I think as humans, our tendency is to go the path of least resistance, to do what's easiest. And the liability of that is we found very easy ways now to keep ourselves occupied. Like his his book came out before social media, but now in addition to TV, we have social media, we have smartphones, and we just have this alternate form of engagement that gives us just enough feeling of connectedness for us to not feel like we need to go out and actually connect with people sometimes. I also think like, there's limitations in online groups. I, I don't knock them. I think, you know, they're great. And we've seen how helpful they are as alternatives during this pandemic. But I don't think that they can replace in-person interaction. And I do think that some norms of, of how we interact online have kind of polluted how we interact as people in, in real life. Mm. Um, for example, you know, Chris, you're on this Facebook group. 
I don't know, you're, you're talking about this common interest, podcasting, right? Everybody's engaged. You're having these conversations. Maybe you go to virtual coffee with a few people. But the nature of online interactions is that you can easily opt out, right? Like there's not yeah. a lot of consequence. You don't have a really a reputation to protect in the same way as if it was someone in your community. And so it's very easy to have all the joys of connection, but not the piece that's we are accountable to one another, which is super important uh, for, for something called communal relationships. The deepest relationships we have are defined by us showing up in moments of need. And so when we superimpose the structure that we found online, where, hey, we are enjoying each other's company, positive vibes only, we get along based off of the shared interest, but there's absolutely no requirement for us to show up for each other if we're going to the hospital or we're going through a divorce, that's just not part of how we're relating online, then, um, you know, I think we really lose out when we take that same model and use it in person. And I have seen more and more, you know, we've seen narcissism increase for the last few decades. Um, And so I think there is this way that we've been moving towards, you know, relationships that are about simply almost like hedonistic, like are about the joys Mm -hmm. and the pleasures we can get for them rather than the responsibility to one another. And that is a trend that I find very dangerous. Yeah. I mean, I feel like those groups are great if you have a rare disease and you're like the one person in your community. And but now you can suddenly reach all the communities around the world and like you can get information on how to treat it, how to manage your well-being, et cetera. Like that's a great use of technology. But I think what you're talking about feels very true where you have some of these interactions and like, cool, you like someone's picture online, but like that feels really vapid. That feels very superficial, right? So I'm I'm wondering like maybe you could help sort of lay out a, a, a model, like a mental construct of like how do relationships actually form, right? Like, is there, a, is there a formula where like you need to, you need to spend time with someone like X number of times, or you need to have a shared struggle or you need to be vulnerable or authentic? Like, is there kind of like a soup or a formula that generally leads to real meaningful relationships? Yeah, I've I've done a few speaking engagements on this topic and it's led me to create this model, which it's I call the idea model. And it's um, initiate, disclose, expose, and affirm. So initiate is a really important one because I think a lot of us assume friendships happen organically, right? Like it's just naturally gonna get into a place where we start hanging out instead of I actually have to initiate and put myself out there and say hello and introduce myself and invite you into my life. Uh, That piece is very, very important because in fact, we find that people that think friendship happens without effort are more lonely five years later and people that take Mm. their effort are more satisfied and less lonely. Um, After that, I have disclose, expose and affirm. They're not really in any particular order, but they're all very important for our relationships to progress. So disclosure is really that vulnerability piece, mutual sharing, sharing things about yourself, hearing things about the other person. I think we often have this misconception that vulnerability is a burden when in fact a meta-analysis found that self-disclosure is linked to people liking us more. Um, It conveys to people that we trust them and it conveys to them that we're authentic, that we are honest. And so people really like it when we disclose to them, actually. I think there's this few people who get a sort of a little bit weird. <laughs> and that's the one we sure. remember. Um, but by and large, people very much enjoy disclosure and also enjoy when we listen to them share about themselves, which is why people really like their therapists. 
Um, <laughs> the next piece is exposure, right? So we need to have, we need to continue to interact over time. I think another problem that we have is sometimes we assume that how we, how we, our impression of someone when we first meet them, and we use that to define the potential of the entire relationship. When in fact, there's this phenomenon called the mere exposure effect. And basically the idea is that as we are exposed to people more and more over time, as they become more familiar to us, we tend to like them more. This is a process that happens completely unconsciously. Just if you're exposed to someone's face over and over and they don't pose a threat to you, eventually you're going to come to like them more than you did at the beginning. And so it's really that sense of familiarity that breeds connection. And so I think, you know, Billy Baker, he just had this book come out, We Need to Hang Out. And he, it was all about his memoir about finding male friendships. And he tried all these different things. He invited his high school friends to a skip day and, you know, to the bar and had these reunions. And he basically found that the key to making friends was scheduling a regular time to hang out with each other. And so that's hmm. what he did. And he, he, you know, he brought that exposure piece. I think that's really, really important. And then affirmation or, or affection for the A, um, you know, one misconception people have about making friends is that people who make friends are smart, they are funny, they are entertaining, they are persuasive. But no, the people that are good at making friends are the people that make other people feel like they matter. They make other people feel very safe. It's less about who they are as people and more about what they convey to other people. So showing affection, showing affirmation, doing things like, you know, your new friend reaches out and you say, I am so happy to hear from you. I would love to hang yeah. out. Showing that enthusiasm, um, telling people in your life how much they mean to you. All of that is so important for creating and maintaining friendships. That's like that's almost a relief to hear you say that the last part around affirmation, right? Because I feel like you, a lot of times you meet people you're, and you're like, I think sometimes you recognize like, okay, I need to do something. Like I need to get this over the, like the, over the hump or like push us into a new place, right? So I'm going to initiate. And I think that part is hard and on its own. But the affirmation part, like then you show up and you you feel pressure to be like, to be funny or to be likable or to be cool or to be whatever. But what you're saying is, is that's not really what the big driver is. It's more, how do you make the other person feel? Do you make them feel exactly valued or whatever those things are? Yeah. So this is based off of really interesting theory. It's called risk regulation theory. It argues that we as humans are very afraid of rejection. We are constantly mm -hmm. scanning for it and making decisions based off of how likely we think rejection is. Um, and basically for us to engage in all of the behaviors that promote friendship, for us to feel comfortable reaching out to someone or showing affection or being vulnerable, we need to feel like we know that that person will not reject us, right? And so when we yeah. are become safe for other people, um, when we show that affirmation of them, even when we're vulnerable ourselves, we convey that we're safe for that other person. We then allow the other person to engage in all of the behaviors that promote friendship. We free them up because we show them, hey, you won't be rejected if you come towards me and you want to hang out with me. Like, I will be open to that. And that is that type of safety is the type of behavior that invites people to want to be friends with us. So I want to spend some more time on this because I think this is so powerful and I love that it's simple, but it, it like, it, there's a lot to it. Right. So if I think about the initiate part, is there, is there a certain formula here? Is it something where like, this is the data say that like, I, you need to see people once every week, month, quarter, year or whatever. Like, obviously if you see some like once a year, like you kind of just catch up, but you don't really get closer. 
how do you think about that balance between often enough, but not so often that like you feel desperate or it's taking up all your time? (laughs) That's a good question. There is a study that looks at how many hours it takes to make a friend. I don't remember what the outcome is. I think it was like around 150 or something. But I will say that it's hard for me to answer that because I think it's not necessarily about the amount of time, but the quality of the time, Mm -hmm. right? Like if you're just hanging out and talking about shallow things, you can hang out for years and not feel close to one. I mean, look at like people's colleagues at work, right? Like they're not really sharing things about themselves. And often you've been working together for years and you don't really feel like you know each other. But when you have those quality interactions where there's vulnerability, where there's affection, Mm -hmm. where you're talking about who you are as a person rather than, I don't know, the weather, those are the types of things that bring us closer in a shorter amount of time. So that is, I guess, the the difficulties in, in putting it in a direct timeline because it really depends on how you're interacting to lead to closeness. But I will say, you know, for people that want to, I don't, I don't mean to like maneuver out of this question for people who are, you know, curious, like, what should I do with this friend? Um, so I think that we should, well, I, well, first of all, what's worked for me is hanging out weekly with, with new people that I really like, but that's not to say that this is the general rule. The other thing is, I think we tend to think of things as creepy or weird, or I'm going to be clingy. But it's not actually about that as much as it is what is the other person's capacity in their life to take on this new relationship, right? Like someone who maybe just moved to a new city, is single, ready to make new friends, they'll love to see you all the time. Mm. (laughs) They'll be happy to hear from you all the time because they have that time in their own lives. Someone who maybe, you know, just started a new family, has really young kids, that might feel like a lot for them. They're like, oh, like, you know, like, I I enjoy you as a person, but I don't know if I have that room in my life for for that much. And I think that incompatibility piece, incompatibility of time, priorities at this moment is also a really important way that we can depersonalize it when someone is Mm. like, you know, I think I'm going to be busy. I'm not actually free to to meet up weekly. That it's not necessarily about you as much as it is where they are at in their lives and whether that matches where you're at in your life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's, that part is really helpful because, and that, that kind of gets to your point around like rejection and not wanting to be rejected, right? You don't want someone to basically say like directly or indirectly, like, I don't have time to, to spend as much time with you as you would like, right? Like that part doesn't feel great. Um, I also, it also makes me think about like some of the experiences that I've had at work where you're in a high stress environment, you're working until one in the morning. Like those are, I mean, those aren't very fun times professionally, but, but socially, like I've made some really good friends in those periods of time because you like, I don't know, weird things happen at one in the morning, right? Like you disclose things, (laughs) you share things, you're vulnerable in ways, like your guard gets down, uh, when it's late at night and you're tired and frustrated and whatever else. Right. And so I think I miss that a lot professionally. Like I miss having some of those moments, I guess, do you have thoughts on how to recreate some of that? Like the best parts of that as an adult, where maybe you're a little bit busier than you were before, particularly if you have a long, a young family, et cetera, but like getting more quickly to that, that vulnerability, that authenticity, that disclosure, like, are are there situations you could seek out? Like we go do something that puts us in a certain state of mind, or we buy some chat packs or play a game or like, are there things you can do that can speed up the process for you? Yeah. I think one thing that's important is what 
is called, I guess, in the in the friendship world, multiplexity. But another Ryan Hubbard, he has this this kite string project. It's all about social connection. He calls it repotting. I think that's a very more intuitive word. And the idea okay. is that when you meet up in different settings, it deepens your relationship. So, you know, if you're just seeing your colleagues at work, they might only be work friends. They might not feel like real life friends. But if you start to go to happy hour with them, go to dinner with them, invite them over for Thanksgiving, just knowing each other across these different settings give us this sense that we know who each other is more deeply. And it's, yeah. you know, what really promotes friendship is both breadth and depth. Like people know us across different settings and they know us more deeply. And those two aren't mutually exclusive. So I think you can really shake up a relationship and deepen it when you think of creative ways to interact. And obviously, you know, that's true in our romantic relationships, right? People focus on date night, date night, date night, have your date night, have this this new experience. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's really important for all types of relationships. So, you know, and I think we, (laughs) when it comes to friendship, I think we get caught up in happy hour, (laughs) happy hour dinner hell. (laughs) And, um, you know, we do that over and over and over again. But, you know, can you invite someone into your home? Can you invite them on a day trip? What is something that you can do differently in this friendship? I'll say the other thing is take the risk of vulnerability. Um, See what it's like to open up to this person. It doesn't have to be your deepest, darkest secret, but you can be a little bit more honest than you would have been and see how that lands. Because the thing about vulnerability is that, first of all, it leads people to like us more. Um, But second of all, it makes other people feel safe to be vulnerable. And so you might sort of start this positive reinforcing cycle. I think all of all of the positive behaviors in friendship just make the other person more likely to engage in the positive behaviors as well. So they're really powerful. But yeah, so just be a little bit more vulnerable than you would have been and just see how it lands, see how things go from there. Is there... Um... Is there something, and maybe it falls under vulnerability, but is there something around like asking favors of people? Like I grew up not wanting to ask favors of people, right? Like you don't want to be indebted to other people. I feel like there have been a lot more situations though as an adult where like you you actually put yourself out there and you ask someone to help you with something. And rather than that person feeling like really put out, they actually feel really good because they got to help you. They got to do something for you. And like, we all kind of want to be useful in some capacity. And that can help with the strengthening relationships. Is that borne out like either in the data or in your experiences, or is that just kind of a, an artifact of my own life? No, I do think that's true. People that are poor at asking for support experience less intimacy in their relationships and um, they're less likely to get support, <laughs> right? The the best yeah. way to, to get the support you need is to ask for it. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think it is a really powerful way to bring us together when we are willing to ask for what we need. And in fact, you know, like I said, the marker of our deepest forms of relationships is that someone is willing to show up for us in our times of need. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, this is really a really powerful way to get close to someone is to prioritize them when they're in a time of need. So they just went through a divorce. They just went through, they're going through a depression. You know, some, they just lost their father. Everybody else is just texting them, writing on their Facebook wall, like, hey, if you ever need any help, I'm here. But you send them food. You actually give them a phone call to check in and see how they're doing. And the thing is, these same behaviors, if they weren't in that time of need, would not create as deep of a bonding as they would when someone is in a time of need, when someone is in a vulnerable spot. And, you know, related to Chris, what you said about like your workplace that you colleagues and getting really close at 1am, these common experiences of stress actually bring us a lot closer 
which is why I think in this pandemic, people have sort of been like, I've actually felt closer to my closest friends because we're in a stressful place where we actually need each other. (laughs) And that makes us feel really, really close to one another. So I think asking for giving and receiving support can be a portal to deep, deep intimacy. I I don't know. There's just like all of these misconceptions that I feel like I've had and most people had before I started (laughs) studying friendship. And, you know, one of them is really that vulnerability is bad or a burden and that like asking for support is the same thing because in fact if you're like choosing not to be vulnerable you're choosing never to ask for support you're actually depriving your relationships of intimacy yeah i think that's a great point i feel like in terms of misconceptions the other one that i've been hung up on a lot over the years is like they require work it's like anything else right like it requires effort sustained over time to build something, right? Whether it's a romantic relationship, a friendship, et cetera. And I think like that makes a lot of sense, but for whatever reason, maybe we watch too many movies. Like it just, it seems like the kind of thing where like you would just expect that you'll, you'll bump into someone in the supermarket, you'll become best friends and then like you'll stay friends forever. Right. And that just, that doesn't seem to match the reality out there. Yeah, no, I I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. Like I don't know why, what I've realized in studying friendship so deeply is that we put relationships in these artificial categories. Like in romantic relationships, we do this. In friendships, we do this. With our family members, we do this. When in fact, mm-hmm. the same ingredients that make relationships good pretty much happen, help across the board. I mean, aside from sex, <laughs> you're usually not having sex with your friends. But, um, you know, putting in that work, having new experiences together, shared experiences of vulnerability, successfully working through conflict, These are the types of things that bring absolutely all of our relationships closer, including our platonic ones. And I feel like we have this narrative. I was talking to my friend, Jeannie Seeger, and she was sort of saying, you know, she has this wonderful husband, but, um, you know, she struggled sometimes in friendships. And she said, you know, we have this narrative of marriage. You're supposed to work through it. It's going to be hard sometimes, but you have to kind of stick it out. But we don't have that about friendship, right? Friendship is just supposed to uplift us and give us like positive vibes only. And it's just, this is so unreasonable because that's just not what it means to be close to people, right? Like when you're close to someone, there's going to be issues, there's going to be problems, and it's going to be hard sometimes, and you're going to have to figure out how to work it out. And so I think when it comes to friendship, I don't know. We've just flattened what it means to be in community with people. We have trivialized what it means to be intimate with people. But, you know, a lot of the skills we've learned in our romantic relationships of how to make a relationship work, we can transfer onto our friendships to make them succeed, too. I always love when things work like that, where there's like one set of rules or one set of best things to do. And it's not like, it's not the novelty that trips you up. It's just the actual showing up and doing it, right? Like I like that simplicity mentally. It doesn't make it any easier to do, but it means you don't have to learn a whole set of of new things. I guess staying on this topic though, I'll speak for myself. I certainly have done this. I know a lot of other people that have as well. I think a lot of us let some of our friendships languish. Like we don't invest in it over time. You kind of grow apart from an old friend Sometimes it's it's a good thing. I think sometimes that's part of of just growing and being ready to move on from something. A lot of other times, though, it's just sort of like you got busy or you were lazy or you didn't know that what you're talking about is true, right, around needing to invest in these things. What's the? How do you think about rebuilding friendships? Is there a good yeah. way to go about rekindling some of those relationships? Yeah. So I think one thing is I, you know, when I interviewed Billy Baker on his book, um, I think it's We Should All Hang Out, but you can check me on that. But one thing that he said, because he 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 works at the works at the Boston Globe and 
he mm-hmm. realized that he was really lonely when he had his first kid and he turned 40 and that he he had been out of touch with his friends, his closest friends for years. And he went through his mental Rolodex and realized, you know, there's all of these things that I think I have to check off to be a good person. Husband, check. You know, health, check. Going to the gym, you know, work, check. Being a good mm-hmm. employee. And he realized you know, by the end of his memoir that he needed to add friendship as a check. (laughs) He needed to add that to his list of priorities, to the types of things that he decides are important to make the time for in his life. And when he did that, he, you know, he started this group with his friends where he met up every week and, you know, spent the time engaging with them and just not taking for granted that like, oh, we've been friends forever. So whatever, I guess we don't have to talk that often because like, it's true that yes, like our closest relationships, we we talk less and they're still sustained, but we are not harvesting all of the beauty and the fulfillment out of them when we let them lie dormant for so long. And so what I would really ask people to do who are sort of like, you know, probably a lot of us, I think at this stage are like, we've fallen out of touch with people. We've gotten disconnected from people. You know, we've just been through this pandemic. It's been so hard on us all. Um, I think it's a good time to give each other grace, but I think it's also a really good time to reconnect with people. And what I realized that, you know, part of the initiation process, whether it's with a new and old friend, your likelihood of engaging in it is really determined by what's called meta perceptions. And that is your idea of what the other person thinks of you. So people that are really poor at friendship, their meta perceptions are very negative. They think the other person doesn't want to hear from me. They're probably too busy. They don't want to hang out with me. Whereas the people that are really good at friendship, their meta perceptions are, I'm going to assume this person likes me. I'm going to assume this person wants to hang out with me. I'm going to assume this person's going to be very <laughs> happy to hear from me. And then you you experience, and then you're more likely to reach out to this person. But you also experience something called, I think it's called the, it's called like the acceptance prophecy, which is the idea that when you think you're going to be accepted, you're more likely to actually be accepted. The reason is that when you think people are going to accept you, it's you're more likely to engage in these warm behaviors. You're more likely to be warm, friendly, engaged. You're going to be more disclosing. Um, So it has a really powerful effect on actually your behaviors and how you engage. And so that's why assuming that your friends like you, even if you haven't talked for a while, assuming that they want to hang out with you is really important and allows you to take that step of just being like, hey, I haven't heard from you in a while. I've totally been wondering what you're doing, how you're doing, like how have things been going? And then it's that easy. Mm It's funny you say that because I I had a friend um, in business school who was the most outgoing person. Like he was friends with everyone. And I remember like when I was first getting to know him, almost being like off put, like like you have a totally different perception of like uh, of how people feel about you and friendship, et cetera. And I think it's exactly what you're describing where I think his like mental model was just people like me, like people want to talk to me and it's really fun to talk to people. And so he was just incredibly outgoing. And like he and I ended up becoming friends, but it's so different than me as someone who's a bit more shy, who like has, and maybe for this reason, has a little more of that self-doubt and a little more of that, like, you know, that narrative of like, does someone want to talk to me? Like, am I overstepping, et cetera? And that must've been so liberating for him. That must be so much fun to go out in the world and just assume that people want to talk to you and want to be your friend uh, and, and just do that. Like, that's awesome for him. <laughs> you know, honestly, I, I relate to that, Chris, because You know, I think before I wrote this book and and got so deeply into friendship, I just realized that I was I was kind of scared of people like I I don't think I would describe it like that at the time. But I think since I've kind of tried to change my meta perceptions and assume that people like me more, 
oh, I just have so much peace. <laughs> so much more like yeah. my mental health is so much better. And, you know, that's another thing. Basically, whatever we do that makes our friendship better also makes our mental health better. Um, so that's really nice, too. You get extra bang for your buck. Um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been that's been one of the most life changing things. And I will say there's also, you know, just for further research proof, if I, if you are, don't want me to beat you over the head about it, this is my last one, but uh, there's a study on something called the liking gap, which these researchers basically paired strangers across a number of different settings, um, professional development workshop in the lab. Then they had them rate each other on how much do you like this person and how much do you think this person likes you? And the researchers mm-hmm. found that in general, people underestimated how much the other stranger liked them. And the more self-critical mm-hmm. people were, the more likely they underestimated. And so, you know, I, I feel like this research has actually really convinced me. Like, I'm a very skeptical person. I'm not convinced by you just telling me your opinions on things. Right. <laughs> Go out into the <laughs> world and, you know, the world is your oyster. I need the facts. <laughs> but yes, the facts have trickled into, like, my mindset. And I think since writing this book, I've reached out to so many more people than I would have otherwise. Um, I think a lot more about how I'm treating other people than how they're treating me. I think before I wrote this book, I thought, why are people leaving me out? Why aren't they initiating with me? But now I hold myself a lot more accountable. Like, am I reaching out to people? Am I making them feel safe? Um, And, you know, I just have a lot more grace. And um, I assume the best and the truth is when it comes to friendship we never know the truth right like so rarely are people like oh never mind i don't like you or yes like you're a hundred (laughs) percent yes for me and so what lives in our head is the truth for all intensive purposes because that's what affects our behaviors that's what affects our mental health and so yeah like changing those meta perceptions assuming people like you assuming people want to hear from you it's it's been groundbreaking for me personally so I feel like we've been kind of dancing around this and I think we have to go there. Like it seems like a lot of this stems from needing to do the work ourselves. Like a lot of the the hangups that we're talking about are that they sound a lot like self-doubt that people have, issues of worthiness, like some of these things where it's kind of a narrative that you have in your own mind and if you can change that, then it opens up the possibility to, to like have all sorts of different types of relationships and friendships, but it seems like you kind of have to go inward first. Is that how you see it as well? Oh, yeah. I mean, I was just reading studies on self-esteem and how people with low self-esteem have poor relationships, poor health. Um, and, you know, the, and they think it's because, you know, I'm not worthy. But the truth is that yeah. when you have low self-esteem, you are in self-protection mode. You are withdrawing. You are not engaging as much because you think people are going to reject you. You're not, um, you know, you're not showing affection towards other people. You're not showing people that you value them. And it becomes the self-fulfilling prophecy. Then when then people aren't giving you that energy of acceptance either. And you're thinking, yeah. oh, my gosh, it's just because, you know, I'm not worthy. But in fact, it's about those behaviors that strike that that string from those feelings of unworthiness, that if we don't feel worthy, we are not going to do all the behaviors that feel very risky, but in fact are necessary to cultivate relationships. Like the risk regulation theory, another tenet of it is that we are either in self-protection mode 
or pro-relationship mode. Those two modes, in many ways, are mutually exclusive. When we are protecting ourselves, Hmm. we withdraw, right? We don't reach out as much because we are afraid of that rejection. We stonewall during arguments. Um, We wait for people to come to us. But on the other side of that, all the things that protect our relationships, we show love to people. We... um, Mm -hmm. You know, we engage, we reach out. All of these behaviors, in fact, put us at more risk <laughs> because people can now reject us. We're putting ourselves out there more. And so it's people with low self-esteem, they just are stuck in that self-protection mode and they're not in that pro-relationship mode that actually makes us friends. You have to be willing to risk rejection because otherwise you're just going to get rejected. <laughs> it's going to be a lot more likely if you're not willing to take the risk. It's, it's ultimately just going to be the truth. Um, and so there is this way that, you know, fundamentally the ways that we value ourselves affect how we treat other people. But we don't often think about it that way because when we have, when we're insecure, when we have low self-esteem, we're thinking a lot more about how people are treating us. We're not thinking about how we're treating them. We don't see people as, we engage in something called an egocentric bias, which is, you know, we're thinking about ourselves, our, our full humanness, our full psychology, but we're not thinking about other people's that they're, they too are afraid of rejection. They too need love. Mm-hmm. They too feel like are going to need affirmation from us to want to move closer to us. And so that is the issue that we have when we struggle with our own self sense of self-worth that we're not as, we're not as um, intentional about showing other people how worthy they are. Yeah. I want to ask you, are there are there certain interventions or practices that people can start or pursue to start to build some positive momentum? Like, are there simple things that you can do to start to change that narrative in your mind to get a couple of like quick wins so that you get that positive upward spiral? Are there things that you recommend, like, or would suggest? Yeah, I think the big one is um, meta perceptions, changing your meta perceptions. Like I said, like trying to tell yourself people like me, people want to hang out with mm-hmm. me. People hear, people want to hear from me. Um, speaking back to that negative voice inside of your head, re- you know, recognizing that we all have this bias to assume people like us less than we do so that we can correct that I think can be really, really powerful. I also think of the idea. One thing I talk about in my book specifically during conflict, but I think that this could help a lot of us a lot of the time If you're stuck in feeling like I'm not worthy, everybody's going to reject me, no one wants to hear from me, picture yourself splitting into two selves. (laughs) Picture yourself that you see the side of you. So you can see the side of you that is assuming everybody's going to reject you and you're not good enough. But you also experience this other side of you that is wiser and can watch that side and can question that side. And, um, and, and is a little bit more secure, right? Um, and so you can, because I think sometimes when we have a very strong feeling, we tend to think that's the only emotion we have when in fact, that's not true. Like we can ex- be secure and insecure at the same time. <laughs> and so I think when we yeah. split into these two selves, we can recognize that, oh, even when I feel so bad and I feel so insecure, there's also this piece of me that feels a lot more optimistic, that that can mm. consider myself a lot more secure that, and I can experience those, those two things within myself and almost lean on that higher self side <laughs> to try to guide me into right. putting myself out there. Yeah. I like that. And I think it, it is, I mean, it's sometimes it's hard, especially if there's like a lot of stress or pressure to, to do that, to do those mental gymnastics. But I, but I love the idea of like, just trying to find that sliver, like just that little bit so or just small. the duality. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. like, if you can start somewhere, then I do feel like it, you start to see what's possible, and that little something can turn into something that's bigger and bigger and bigger. Exactly. Exactly. 
This is this is an amazing conversation. I I, I want to ask you about one specific thing. We've we've talked about it a little bit, but I want to talk about technology specifically. So, we talked a little bit about before, you know, how there are some uses of technology I think that are really helpful. They like technology is I don't know if it's really inherently good or bad. I think there's certainly some great applications of it. Um there are also clearly some really negative like uses and outcomes of technology, right? Um so I guess one question or one extension of that is just, do you feel like the answer is always to try to do things in person? It's to try to, you know, see people's face to face. Like is, is a call always better than a text is in person always better than a call or in your mind, is there like a time and a place for all those things? Hmm. This is a good question. I think that we should aspire to in person but if we can't do that, it's not like we should be like, okay, never mind, then it's gonna be nothing. Like I think technology is like a stair. <laughs> like it's a stair, it's like a stair, a stepping stone, I would say, of connection, right? Where, you know, if we're in the middle of the stairs, we're closer to being on the top floor than we are at the bottom of the stairs. And so I think we can use technology for connection. We can feel close to people for using technology. I will argue that I think in-person is the best. Um, The reason Mm -hmm. being is that when it comes to technology, just being at more of a physical distance from people weakens some of the impacts of connection. So, for example, there's this phenomenon called the amplification effect. When we're around other people, our emotions are amplified, both positive and negative. So if you're happy around other people, you experience joy. (laughs) Whereas if you're sad, you'll experience despair. That is attenuated around technology. Um, There's other research that glitches in the technology affect how we see the other person. So people trust people less when there's like a, a, you know, a glitch due to Zoom when, you know, you can't hear someone. Sure. And so there's this weird way that, that technology does affect our interactions. But there's a nuance there. It's not bad. It's just not as deep as in-person interactions. But it, can, it but there's times when, you know, interne- in-person interaction simply isn't possible, as we've seen in the last year, or where our friendships are long distance, or our life is just very busy. And if that is the truth, if that is what you can give right now, then technology is way better than just retreating. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think it's, you know, it's a tool in our toolbox, one that I think we should certainly use. Um, And Chris, I think you're right to say that there is a lot of nuance in does technology lead to loneliness? And actually the research that I've found is, is that when we use technology to interact in person, then we're actually less lonely. When we use technology to replace in-person interactions, then we're more lonely. So it's it depends on whether we're using it as a stepping stone or whether we're using it mm. as a substitute, which is what we really don't want to do, right? Like I'm not calling my friends, but I'm scrolling, scrolling, scrolling all night. Um, so yeah, there's yeah. a lot of nuance to the technology argument. I'm not pro or con. I am in-person's great and technology is helpful when that's not possible. The other, the other extension of that is around like how many relationships, right? Because there's a limit to how much time we have, how much mental capacity we have. I feel like some people are the kind of people who would say like, I'd rather have two or three really deep, really close relationships than, you know, 200 like acquaintances or whatever. I think other people I know though are, are in the, op- the opposite camp where they're like, I would rather have lots of people that I'm interacting with these looser connections. And that gives me a lot of energy and makes me really happy. Does it really differ by person or is there something that's that's actually a little bit more optimal for most people? 
Yeah, I would say it does differ depending on the person. Some of us do like, you know, a larger group of people. Some of us like our smaller groups. Um, As we get older, there's this hypothesis, the socio-emotional selectivity has that hypothesis. As we get older, we tend to think we have less and less time left and we want to spend it with people we really love. So we actually tend to um, decrease the size of our networks as we age. But in our 20s, we're like, yes, I want adventure. I want newness. And so we tend to have like our biggest social circles in around our young 20s to like the age of 25. And so it depends on like life factors. Um, But I will say, I think alongside that, alongside, you know, giving people room for individual difference, quality really does matter more than quantity. Quantity helps, but quality is really what's important. Just having one good friend will drastically change people's life outcomes. Um, and then having another good friend won't do as much, <laughs> won't change as much. It's it's from sure. going from zero to one is the biggest change that you can make. Um, and so I think, you know, if we can really develop some quality friendships, even if we want to have like a big circle, that's cool. But if, if at least some of those people are people that you feel really close to, I think it will really benefit you. I'm thinking about a study that it analyzed I think it was 106 factors that prevented against depression. And the number one factor was having someone to confide in. And so that intimate Hmm. relationship, that relationship where we can share what's really going on, where we can turn to someone for support, like that really changes our lives forever. Yeah. This has been a fantastic conversation. For folks who want to hear more from you, who would like to to read your book when it comes out, what's the best way to, to stay in touch with you? Yeah, I am Dr. Marissa G. Franco on Twitter. That's D-R-M-A-R-I-S-A-G-F-R-A-N-C-O on Twitter and Instagram. Um, you could also sign up on my website, drmarissagfranco.com to take a survey that assesses your friendship strengths and weaknesses and to get my newsletter, which is monthly, share all about the research on human connection like I did today. And that's where I will be sharing all of my updates as I come closer to my book's release. Dr. Franco, thank you so much. This has been a ton of fun, super insightful, very, very informative. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I love talking about friendship. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for checking out this episode. If this was your first time listening to Reinvented, be sure to click the subscribe button now. If you've been enjoying the show for a while, Don't forget to leave a rating in Apple Podcasts. And if you know someone that would love this episode, take a moment to spread the word. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.